1: Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. Well,
0: hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host Mike Carlin and today I'm excited to introduce you to Glenn Kaplan. Glenn is the New York Times best-selling author of Evil Ink and Poison Pill. He's worked in the international art world and as a creative director in global advertising agencies and a Fortune 500 company. He joins me today on Uncorking a Story to talk about his latest release. Angel of Ambition. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Glenn. Thank you, Mike. Pleasure to be here. I'm gl- glad to have you here, Glenn. Glenn, I'm going to ask you the question I ask everybody to start, which is, where does your story as an author begin?
2: Um, it began as a reader. Uh, I was an English major in college. I was um, uh, an avid uh, Shakespeare scholar in high school. Um, and books were a uh, prime source of fascination. And I never really thought that I could write a book until uh, I moved to New York and I was in the advertising business. And an old college friend of mine who was a big sales director at one of the big publishing houses, he said, well, you can write a book. I deal with people all day long who write books. Really? I could do it? And so um, we began working on something that we hoped was going to be an article in Esquire. And he sort of abandoned it because he said, you know, I'm a sales guy. I'm not a writer. You're a writer. You take it over. And it turned into a nonfiction business book. And I was all set. To, I was an advertising copywriter at Footcone and Belding in New York City. And I got an interview with uh, a publisher, the, the guy who was the editor. Remember, there was a big book called Jaws. A, you know, well, okay, so he was the man behind Jaws. And... Um, he had a new publishing company and he took me to lunch at the f- fabled century club in New York city, which is for artists and writers. It's really for rich people, but it's for artists and writers. And it's says, this- Beautiful, old-fashioned club, and we sit down with silver goblets, and I got Franklin Roosevelt's engraved silver goblet. And he's doing this whole writer-publisher thing and, you know, Robert Benchley and blah, blah, blah. And I figured this is going to be a great one, so I'm going to go back to the agency and I'm going to write ad copy, and he's never going to give me any money to do this book. He called me the next day and he said, I'm going to give you a $50,000 advance, and I'm going to give you a 10000 This was in the early 80s. It was a lot of money back then and I'm going to give you a $10,000 travel thing so you can go around the country to in- interview all these business people. And I said, oh, no, I'm really sunk. I'm going to have to do this book now. It was great when it was a fantasy, but now it's real. <laughs> so I went in, and I told the president of the agency, and he said, okay, yeah, I'll go do the book, but then you can come back. And I spent a year and a half traveling around the country, talking to all these big shots in these industries all over the place. Um, and the book got published, and it got some – nice reviews and it got me, um, a speaking gig at the Harvard business school, but the most literarily insignificant, but, but, but. Culturally significant thing. I got a slot on the Merv Griffin show. If anyone remembers Merv. Oh Griffin.
0: my God. I love Merv Griffin.
2: Okay. So, and this was a big deal. And so I, I go out to California and, you know, blah, 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 and, uh, get on the show and I was preceded by an unknown comedian. This was his big break. And I sit down and then suddenly Merv and this unknown comedian start doing shtick together. And I'm like, this is my eight minutes to sell my book. What am I going to do? So this unknown comedian was a guy named Jerry Seinfeld. (laughs) And so we were talking about stuff and then it. It, I saw an opening and I made a joke at Jerry's expense and it brought the house down, It brought tears to Merv's eyes. He was laughing so hard. And we had a part this show was taken. We had a party a week later and all our friends were there. And I said, my joke is coming. My joke is coming. And they cut it from the
0: show. Oh but- no, that's, you yeah. know, <laughs> there's a few, there's a few parts of this story that, that, that I just have to talk about. Number one, um, I just watched, there was an episode of Seinfeld where Kramer finds on the side of the road, um, side of the street, Merv Griffin's set, and he replicates it in his apartment, and he replicates the Merv Griffin show in his apartment. It's one of the funniest episodes. I just watched it with my kids uh, last week. Isn't that Wow. And the second thing I need to tell you is that in 1996, when I was um, just out of my undergraduate studies, my first job was at 250 East 42nd Street at a company called Falcona Building.
2: Oh, really? Isn't that funny? just are both alumni. Isn't yes,
0: that yes. I, I wasn't there that long because uh, I, I jumped over to Digital pretty quickly. Um, but uh, yeah, that's uh, that's wild. What, what what accounts were you working on back in, oh, in your FCB days?
2: Um, the the people of AT and T who made telephones, Western Electric. <laughs> uh, I got to do my first commercial. Um, and it was interesting because the the New Yorker just before we shot our commercial, the New Yorker had a long article by a distinguished writer named Michael Arlen, which became a book called Thirty Seconds, which was all about the making of a commercial with a particular director named Steve Horn. I was shooting my commercial. I was a baby copywriter with Steve Horn, and. It was it was very glamorous and fun and it was just like this article in the New Yorker and we were doing similar things and working for the same company and and uh, my first day on the set I'm like wow this guy's big important director and he's directing the talent and we do the first scene and I'm thinking this is going to be great to see the, the the technique of this director so he goes yeah that was really good he said now, now read the line again but louder. <laughs>
0: My uh, and I have to say, my first account. I was hired to work on AT and T. So look at oh, that. Oh, really? There, isn't that funny?
2: What a funny coincidence! Yeah, it's yeah. a
0: small, a small world. A small world we live in. It so is. that was that was uh, your first book was nonfiction. Uh, great story. I mean, a fifty thousand dollar advance, probably unheard of uh, in this day and age. Certainly for fiction authors.
2: <laughs> yes. Yeah, and so so then um, I, I went back into advertising, and it you know, was had a really great time. we shooting more commercials and going to LA and doing that whole advertising thing. But I really did want to write fiction. And um, there was another guy in advertising who was doing fiction on the side. His name was Jim Patterson. And um, <laughs> I, used to, I used to see him in the gym and, and we would, we would talk about it. And he said, he said, you, know, you, can, you can write fiction. So um, I struggled away on uh, a book that got published by St. Martin's Press. It was called All for Money, and it was bad, badly published. But it was <laughs> the, it was the first time. So you, you, the the publishing industry you have to laugh at at the vagaries of it. So the editor who bought my book said, "Oh, this is great. I think you have a real voice. I think it's really distinctive. I think this is really different. Um, you know." I'm so thrilled about this book. And then about a month later, I got a call from a secretary at St. Lawrence. and she said, well, you know, uh, Louise was fired. And so your book is being sent to some other person. Um, and this is what they call being orphaned. And this happens a lot in publishing. And I, I said, well, do you think that my book was the cause of Louise getting fired? And she said, no, it had nothing to do with that. So, <laughs> Um, I got orphaned once, and then I got sent to another editor who said, you know, I really like this book. And then she got fired. Um, and <laughs> I asked again, do you think that this is not something you would He goes, no, really not anything with your book. So I finally was given a, uh, a, a kid editor who was very professional, very intelligent, very sensitive. I have no idea what he really thought about the novel, but he was a wonderful editor. And his name was Bill Thomas, and he's now the head editor at Doubleday. He's a very big deal. And he was terrific then. Um, uh, and I think he made it, it was a great experience, uh, being edited by someone who turned out to be one of the most important editors in the business for that first novel. And I sort of left fiction for a while, uh, our personal life, you know, life takes over. And I started another book uh, and and sent it, sent a, a draft off to Jim Patterson. He said, This is really good, you should work on it. And I did, and that became Evil Inc., which was published in 07. And it hit the New York Times, it got to number 20 one week and number 23 the next week. Uh, and that was very exciting. Um, and if people have dreams of big money with all this stuff. Let me tell you a little story. So the week that Evil Ink hit number 20, I opened the mail and I said "I said to my wife, look, there's a statement from my agent and I open it up and I go, oh my God, the book is already earned out. And we're number 20 on the New York Times bestseller list and I've got a check. And she said, well, how much is the check? And I said, $300. She goes, nice.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That must be how you bought that house in Connecticut, I'm sure. Absolutely. Absolutely.
2: Exactly. So, um, uh, and and then um, after that, I was introduced to another agent, uh, Al Zuckerman, who was the founder of Writer's House. He had edited, you know, Ken Follett and Nora Roberts and all sorts of people. He was famous as a fiction writing coach. And he said, well, you know, your book, Evil Link* is pretty good. He said, but I can make you an even better writer. I said, that sounds good to me. Um, So I signed on with him and we worked together on what became this book called Poison Pill. And it was published by the same folks as uh, as Evil Link*. And it was interesting because Tom Doherty, who founded the the division of St. Martin's of Macmillan uh, called Tor Forge was still there. And he said, you know, he said, it's interesting. You worked with Al and this is a, this is a, an even better book than Eva Link. Uh It didn't do as well for, you know, who knows what those reasons are. It's the the publishing business is is, is a part of show business and it has those vagaries. but uh, I'm very proud of that book. Um, one of the things that I was most proud of is women, the, the main character that is a woman named Emma Conway. And she under, she, um, She becomes the CEO of this company that comes under threat of a hostile takeover. That's the poison pill part. The guy who's leading the hostile takeover is her ex-husband. Oh, wow. so So it's a business thriller, but there's all this juicy marital stuff, and they've got the kids and all that. And the thing that I was most proud of with women readers is a number, quite a number of them said, you know, when I read the book, and I saw, and I and I got into the character of Emma Conway. I couldn't believe that a man had written this this female character. I mean, your your insight into her and the depth of the character and the the sensitivity toward the things that she would you, you did you did a really convincing job. And I can't believe you're a man.
0: <laughs> Where do you think that sort of I don't know if it's empathy, but that that inherent understanding of you know a female character comes from?
2: Well, I mean. Because my current book is very much a female-driven, female-driven story. I think I, I was raised by by a tribe—not just my mom, but but her sister. I was raised by a tribe of very strong, independent, independently minded women. Who, in in my you know boomer generation, it was rare for women to have careers, but these women all had careers, and so um, I, I, I grew up with women who were who were strong, independent, um, highly supportive of me as, as a young man, but also insisting that, you know, you have to deal with women, not like, you know, little wifeys at home, uh, or, or, or extensions of, 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 of men's desires and ambitions we're separate people where we have our own thing. And when the women's movement was happening, which was when I was a young man, it all made perfect sense to me. So, um, and I went briefly to a women's college on the exchange program. So when the house mother would say, girls, I go, oh, she's talking to me. <laughs> uh, and, and, and I will say that um, the, the academics at the women's college were and the classrooms were much more competitive than the all-male college uh, from which I was fleeing. Um, So I I think, um, and and I think just women, I think are more interesting human beings generally, and all generalizations are wrong, but but women are, are much more interested in what makes other people tick. Women are more connected to feelings women are more connected to the essentials. You know, most men generally, you know, they like sports, they like competition, they like to keep, they look at the scorecard, um, the scoreboard. Um, I, I think women are much more interested in more essential human things about, about us human beings. Um, and, well, let's face it, I mean, I, you know, from the book business, because I was a long time a creative director at Barnes and Noble, we know from a marketing standpoint that overwhelmingly women are the book buyers in this country, and the yeah. readers that they're 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 the really passionate readers.
0: Yeah, that absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, I work on in the in the qualitative side of the market research business, and you know, which requires you know a depth of uh, understanding people. Uh, and and sort of a, a motivation to understand them better and to get into all that touchy-feely stuff. And if I were to – I don't have numbers in front of me, but if I were to guess, 80% of the people who do what I do um, are not men. So yep. Yep. it's um, – yep. I, I definitely understand all, all that you're saying. Um, yeah. But I, yeah, I do want to talk about Angel of Ambition. Not that we can talk too, too much about it because you don't want to give the story away, but what can you share with us about Angel of Ambition?
2: Um, Angel Ambition is the story of Angela Hansen, and she's a girl who grew up in the the, the the housing, public housing projects in New York City. And when you grow up downtown like that, you see all the glitter of, of uptown. And I noticed that earlier this year you had Sophie Irwin. On, I
0: sure did, yeah.
2: And her book, A Lady's Guide to Fortune Hunting, that phrase, fortune hunting. Angela Hansen is a 21st century fortune hunter. Now, Sophie's story, which is a wonderful, wonderful book, is is a romance. Um, Angel of Ambition is very much a 21st century, I think, gritty, glamorous, a little bit dark um, story of being a fortune hunter today. There are no handsome lords. Uh, There's a billionaire. Um, there are adventures, there are compromises, there are some nasty corporate doings, uh, and she kind of slashes and burns her way through it. And, um, the way she makes peace with her fortune hunter and her fortune hunting and the the things that she succeeds at, is, she says, she's in the, in the beginning of the book, she writes a letter to an imaginary daughter who she hopes someday to have. And she says, I want you to grow up feeling entitled to all of the things that I was not entitled to, where a world was telling me that I had, couldn't have a big life, that I couldn't do this, that I couldn't do that, that I didn't deserve this. But I want you to know that it isn't just the material things that I want for you. I want you to feel entitled to feeling whole, to feeling loved. And the one thing in the course of my life, Angela Hansen, that I was never able to afford was to be able to allow myself to give in to the power of love. And so she makes it to the very, very, very top. But there's a price that she pays and she knows what that price is. But there's a yeah. lot of fun, a lot of excitement, a lot of suspense and glamour along the way.
0: Yeah. It's and that, it's that human need for, for love and connection. That sounds like it's missing in her life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But she, gets
2: yeah.
0: else. she gets everything else. I mean, it begs the question, though, if we have everything else in the world, but we don't have that, you know, what do we really have? It's a uh, philosophical question,
2: perhaps. It's a philosophical question. Um, I have a friend whose brother sold his company for a gazillion dollars, and he's had like four marriages. And our friend, his sister, said to him one time as he was leaving after visiting, she said, you know, but, but are you really happy? And he hops into his Ferrari and he looks and he says, Happy enough. He drove away. Happy enough. So I, I don't know. I mean, look, Angel of Ambition is is a fun suspense ride uh, through a, a world of glamour and grit and 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 conflict.
0: Yeah. Well, it sounds it definitely sounds like an exciting read. Certainly something that's up my alley. Um, I I always like to get to know my uh, my guests a little bit more through uh, through pop culture. Um, and as a former advertising guy, you might be able to appreciate that. So I'm curious, when you were growing up, Glenn, what were some of your favorite uh, TV shows? What did you like to watch?
2: I, um, I remember all sorts of um, – let me, let me think what I really, really enjoyed. Uh, I enjoyed the Norman Lear shows, you know, All in the Family, Maud, uh, The Jeffersons. And I think what I liked about them was the societal comments mm-hmm. that they made in them, because it was kind of breaking things open for people and and pointing out prejudices and biases and bigotry and all that. And and that was that was really really fun. Um, and of course, in I, I was Woodstock generation, so all that music was terribly terribly important to us. In fact, <laughs> my buddies and I we actually had tickets to Woodstock. But, you know, when you're a a group of college kids, there's like one guy who has the car and the other guys don't have the car. And so the guy who had the car that summer, he said, I don't want to go to another rock concert. He said, let's go climb Mount Washington. So we climbed Mount Washington and we're listening on our little transistor radio and what we're missing at Woodstock. And we missed it.
0: Oh my gosh. So I uh, was interviewing somebody um, not, not for the podcast, although she, I tracked her down after this fact and she, she, she did join me on this show. Um, I was, I was doing a project in Phoenix, Arizona, and I was talking, I was actually interviewing, um, this woman's son. He was a high school athlete and the the, the project was for a protein powder company. So yep. we were talking to high school athletes as well as some professional athletes, which was neat, but, um, I can tell this is the last interview of the project. I didn't even want to do the interview. The client said, we don't need to do this one. We've had enough. I said, you know what? We're here. We're going to do it. So we go into this house. Um, and, uh, I could tell the mother was like, who the hell are you people talking to my son? Like, she just had like this, like instinct, like this is just strange. And if you think about it, the work we kind of do sometimes can be strange. Um, but uh, I I knew that my first job was to was to kind of bring her at ease, like make her feel at ease. So I started asking her about her life, and she's like, "Well, you know, we just moved out here. I'm from upstate New York." I said, "Well, we're we're from upstate New York. My aunt and uncle were from upstate New York." She's like, uh, and then I hear this voice on the couch, who's her husband, saying, "Just tell him." And she's like, "Well, do you know um, you know, the, anything about Woodstock?" And I'm like. I mean, I'm a little bit younger than that generation, but I mean, that's the music that I love. Right. And she's like, "Well, I I own Andy Yasker's homestead. Really? Yes. Um, uh, so she she doesn't own the property the concert was on, but she owned his home or his Max Yasker. I said Andy Yasker. Andy Andy. <laughs> interestingly, Andy Yasker was his nephew who I worked with at Mastercard a hundred years ago. But that's uh, that's another story. She was
2: there. With who? Peter Dempsey, that was one oh, of my-
0: I remember Oh, I remember Peter Dempsey, yeah. Yeah,
2: I, I did yeah. commercials for, for, for him, for Peter Dempsey for oh, yeah. MasterCard. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um,
0: but yes, yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, that was my Woodstock connection. And then I interviewed her about what it was like. Um, and then she tells me during the interview, she's like, oh, I never made it to Woodstock. Wow. <laughs> like, oh, you got to be kidding me. But she and her mother were handing out sandwiches to everybody who were stranded on the side of the road because of the, That's a the three-way, of, but.
2: It's a real piece of history.
0: Yeah. Uh, but what about now? Anything you'd like to watch on, uh, on TV now? Is there anything worth watching in, in your mind, Glenn?
2: I haven't, the, 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 the last thing that I saw on, on Netflix right after the, the worst of the lockdown was something that I thought was an incredibly brilliant, totally original piece of indescribable um, catharsis after the pandemic. Um, it's a piece that, that got a lot of play called Inside by Bo Burnham. And what he did during the lockdown was, cause he, he, he writes songs and, and, and does satire and what, and he's extremely talented. He made a movie all by himself, his own cameraman, his own editor, his own effects person, and it's just a, a, a seemingly disconnected string of observations about himself and about society during the course of the lockdown. And, and each little set piece is more brilliant than the next one. I mean, he, he does a spoof of uh, a, a white woman's Instagram. That's just an incredible spoof. He does spoofs, he does spoofs on everything, but but there's real thought behind it. That this guy is a brilliant, multi-talented person. And um, he's been doing this since he was a teenager. He became a, he started as a YouTube phenomenon. Um, and, and apparently what, what he said was he interrupted his performing career because he was having panic attacks. And he stayed off stage for five years. And then he was going to go back performing the minute COVID hit. And so that kind of you know increased his shock but but this piece inside is just brilliant
0: yeah um i know you were talking about not going to woodstock before um who out of everyone who performed at woodstock who do you regret not seeing the most
2: oh really oh hendrix Mm. um I mean, really, all, all of them. There's so many great. There's so many great people. I mean, I think the only one I, I probably don't care that I didn't see is eat <laughs> <laughs> I,
0: I heard. I heard on the road again, <laughs> as I was driving to work this morning. Isn't that funny? Yeah, that so funny, funny. Yeah. so funny. Um, I see you've got a lot of books behind you. If you were, um, if you knew you were going to be stranded on a desert island, uh, let's say you, were, you jumped into the cast of Gilligan's Island, uh, and you could bring. You know, a, a few different books with you. What, what what books would you want to make sure came with you uh, to the uh, desert islands?
2: have Shakespeare because it's got all the plays. Um, I would bring uh, the Philip Marlowe books by Raymond Chandler, which are just you know, I read I I reread those for for the stories and also just for the, the writing, his handling of words and his juxtaposition of things. It's just it's. Uh, he, he's such a master. He's such a master. And, and then, you know, he really perfected the art of the noir. Uh, so I, I would want to be with, um, with, with Philip Marlowe. And, um, another book I would reread is the poisonwood Bible by Barbara King. Some um, I think that book is a masterpiece. It's, it's about, uh, a family that is um, their missionaries in, in Africa in the 1960s and the family kind of falls apart. And it's one of those books where you say, what's it about? And it's really about everything. I mean, it's yeah. about a mother's love. It's about children growing up. It's about colonialism. It's um, it, it, it it's about the natural world and man colliding with it. Uh, and it's just from, from beginning to end, it's just, it's just, beautifully magnificently written um i haven't followed her as much uh of her later books but this is the the poisonwood bible is 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 just a masterpiece and it's one of those books that you can reread and and get something out of it each time you reread it
0: as a former ad guy um i'm curious and and you can pick one of your ads or any ad um but um any any ads you consider particularly memorable or, or something you'd put on a, on a top 10 list?
2: Oh, sure. Last year's Super Bowl commercial for Uber Eats. <laughs> that was brilliant advertising. It was absolutely brilliant advertising and everything about it. The concept of, you know, playing on Eats and, and, and the, the confusion about Uber and the, the the celebrities that they cast in it and the way they use them. It was absolutely, and, and a lot of Super Bowl advertising, because I'm a student of that, is, is is just mountains of money searching for a purpose and yeah. being washed down the drain. But this commercial, it it was creative, it was rule breaking, it was mold breaking, and and yet it did all the things that the market researchers and the brand people wanted to do. I mean, it, it nailed the brand. It, it was just—it was a brilliant, funny, hysterical commercial. And because a lot of times on the Super Bowl stuff, the things that are really entertaining, the brand gets lost. Yeah. But this one just drove it home. I mean, once once you saw those people biting into the 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 the, 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 the detergent, or you know, biting into things <laughs> that weren't food, it was, it, was, it was because you eats it. And it was it was just a great commercial. Really, really right. admire.
0: All right. Well, very good. Um, you know, kind of going back on, on the more serious side of things. Um, just kind of thinking about your your career as an author. Um, any big lessons you've learned about yourself? Uh, you know, going back to that, that first you know book you sold, nonfiction to, through the fiction, um, your fiction work. What uh, what big lessons have you learned about yourself?
2: That I that the the, the marketplace and your book are two different things and what happens in the marketplace may or may not be a reflection of of what's in the book. And so what you really have to derive your satisfaction from is crafting the book that you feel is gonna give readers the best possible experience of the idea that you have. Now, how many readers you find will vary upon the vagaries of the marketplace, and, and there's only so many things you can do. It's, it's, it's largely largely out of your control. Um, but the one thing you can control is making what you feel is a really good book. And, and that's, that's the principal satisfaction. And then the other things you have to roll with the punches as they come.
0: And uh, last up here, if you could go back in time and, and whisper some words of advice to your younger self. Um, what would you tell the younger Glenn? Aside from you better go to Woodstock and not go hike Mount Washington.
2: When I was writing the first few books, I spent too much time with the fine ultra fine sandpaper on the prose, and while in an obsessional way it's kind of a satisfying activity, it's not worth it, and the readers don't don't see it or appreciate it. And so I would say, Glenn, those sentences are really good the way they are don't go, don't keep going back over them
0: yeah so kind of not be too hard on yourself and not strive for perfection necessarily and um i would also say like you know trust that an editor is gonna to to, to pick out anything that's majorly wrong with it too right
2: absolutely yes yeah that's what they're for
0: all right so the book is angel of ambition the my guest today has been uh, glenn kaplan uh, Glenn, where can people pick up *Angel of Ambition*?
2: Well, it's, uh, Amazon is is the easiest place. Barnes and Noble. You can order it online as well. Um, those those are the best places. The the bookstore uh, distribution is a little spotty, but you can always walk into your bookstore and and order it. Uh, that's that's easy to do. Um, the IPG Group um, can get it to the bookstore overnight.
0: All right. And uh, Glenn, if people want to reach out to you, check you out either on social media or through a website. Do you have any uh, links you can share with everybody?
2: Yeah, Uh, it's Angel of Ambition on um, Instagram. That's easy to remember. And uh, you can check out Glenn Kaplan author on Facebook. And on YouTube, we've made some wonderful videos. If you just uh, search Angel of Ambition on YouTube, you'll see a wealth of of, uh, really well-done videos that we shot in a studio in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, that look looked like my stuff from the old days when you know the client budgets were, ooh, you know, really high.
0: Very good. Well, uh, Glenn, thank you for stopping by Uncorking a Story and letting me uncork yours.
2: Thank you. Pleasure.
1: Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.